Well, good morning and uh, a welcome again, a warm welcome to you, whether you're uh, joining us in person or online, it's good to be together uh, as, as we're able to gather each week in this way, and it's certainly a privilege um, to be able to open God's Word as we continue uh, in our series on the book of Revelation, and today we're uh, we reach the halfway point in the book, the, the hinge of the book, if you like, where we begin to move um, from the long introduction uh, that was lar- has largely formed the first half of the book into the second half where a lot of the action uh, begins to happen. And so today we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapters 10 and 11. And we're actually in the section of the book that uh, covers the seven trumpets, uh, which is found in chapters 8 uh, through 11, and if you've been following the series, you'll know that we covered uh, Revelation 8 and 9 last week because it just felt that, you know, reading and explaining four chapters of, of Revelation in a half hour is probably a bit much. Um, but for those of you who are uh, new to the book or perhaps a bit confused uh, by this series so far, I want to take just a moment as I introduce today's text just to think about the plot of Revelation as a whole. How does the story arc um, of this book work? Revelation is basically a book of four visions. The first vision is a vision of Jesus, and that's where we began in chapters one to three. We meet the sevenfold Savior as he's described in chapter one, and his sevenfold church in chapters two and three. That's the first vision. The second vision is the chunky one in the middle of this book, which is much the longest, and that is a vision of God's throne, of God's government over all things. And what it does is it gives us heaven's perspective on the rule of God in Christ, of Satan's attack on the church, of God's judgment of worldly powers, and of God's vindication of his persecuted people. That big second vision is all about that stuff, but it's quite a long vision, so I'll clarify uh, a bit how the plot of that vision works in just a moment. But that's the second big vision. Then the third vision is of the harlot Babylon, who we will uh, meet in a few weeks' time, uh, and we'll explain that then. Don't worry, we'll, we'll get to it. And then the fourth vision is the vision of the bride of Jesus Christ, the church. And in that sense, if you think about it, the story of Revelation begins with Jesus the lover and then comes in the other woman, the harlot, and then concludes with the bride to whom Jesus is married and they live happily ever after. It's a love story, if you like. It's, it's a beautiful love story as it starts with a fractured relationship, but it ends with a wedding and everlasting happiness. And so that's the overall plot. And then within this big second vision that we're in at the moment, despite all of its uh, puzzling symbols and so on, there's actually quite a straightforward plot, even to this central vision. God is sitting on the throne, and Jesus receives in his right hand a scroll that's marked with seven seals. 
And those seven seals are then opened one by one. You, you, you see the seven seals one by one are being broken. As, and as they are, the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride out. And you see the cry of the martyrs and you see the response of the rest of the world. And then as the seventh seal is broken, you think you're about to read what's on the scroll. But instead you hear seven trumpets sounding. You know, that kind of thing. And the first six we looked at last week. And they consist of waves of judgment and in the, in using up to these symbolic grotesque creatures that would seek to harm God's people if they could. And these first six trumpets prepare us for the, the seventh and final trumpet and prepare us to finally read what's on the scroll. And then in the text we're going to read in a moment, the scroll is finally given to John for him to read. And he actually, as we'll see, he actually eats it. And, 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 and we'll look at why and what that means in a moment. And then in chapters 12 to 15, what happens is John finally reads and preaches the content of the scroll in seven visions, which we'll, come, we'll begin looking at next week. And then after that, in chapter 16, we find the seven bowls of God's judgment being poured out on the earth. So that's the plot of this central vision. A scroll with seven seals is gradually opened, and trumpets prepare us to hear what it's going to say. And then in chapters 12 to 15, it's preached, and then the judgment of God is poured out to prepare us for the third vision, the vision of the harlot of Babylon. And so today's text is in many ways the hinge of the book. It's the moment when John is finally given the scroll to read and eat and prophesy. And so as he does so, we're going to find a very powerful statement of the triumph and vindication of the church. And in many ways, that's the theme of the book of Revelation. The theme of the book is not really, hey, Jesus wins. We already knew that from the rest of the New Testament. We already knew that, in fact, earlier on in the the book of Revelation. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. We we know that in chapter 5. The story of Revelation is not so much that Jesus wins. It's that we do. In Christ, conquer, triumph. We Nike, we overcome. And this text we're going to read right now is a powerful statement of the triumph and vindication of the church of Jesus Christ. So let's read chapters 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, I think, just to pause, I think this is describing the Lord Jesus. I know it uses the word angel, but the, the Greek word for angel is simply their word for messenger. That's just what the word means. And I think when you read a description of a mighty messenger of God who is wrapped in a cloud with a mighty rainbow or with a rainbow around his his head, his face shining like the sun, his legs on fire and the voice like a lion that thunders, I think this is the Lord Jesus. I could be wrong. It doesn't particularly matter, I don't think. 
But if you're just wondering, who's this mighty angel? I think that's the Lord Jesus. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created, the heaven, created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but, your but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must, again, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So we're about to hear the scroll preached. Again, pause. We're about to hear the scroll preached, and it's both bitter and sweet. And I think what's going on there is it is a scroll of both judgment that makes your stomach go bitter, but it's also of blessing which makes your mouth taste sweet. And so effectively, John is saying, well, this is sweet to the taste, but it's also got bitterness to it. Because it's a scroll both of blessing and judgment that John is going to pr proclaim in the next few chapters. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure in the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I'm just going to pause again. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, a time, times, and a half time on occasion. All of those phrases mean the same thing in Revelation. And they are powerfully symbolic in the Jewish world in a way that they probably aren't in ours. They refer to a period of intense tribulation and suffering in Israel's relatively recent past. Between the year 168 and 165 BC, Israel was absolutely pillaged and attacked with the most terrible abominations that took place in the nation from the Syrian king. His name was Antiochus IV, and he came in and he sacrificed the pig in the temple. I mean, he desecrated it. And the Jewish people, some of them, were forced to remove marks of circumcision. I mean, this was a terrible time of attack for, on the people of God, and it lasted three and a half years. And that three and a half year period, or 42 months, became a very resonant phrase a t or time me measurement in their world. Much like the numbers 9-11 have very powerful resonance in, in, in our world, right? You say the word 9-11 to someone in the year 1999, it doesn't really mean anything. What are you talking about? Now we know what that means because we were there, right? And we remember that period of intense, whoa, this was a, a dramatic moment of attack that has really shaped who we are today. And in a way, three and a half years or 1,260 days or 42 months, that's like that for Israel. So that's what's going on with that phrase, and, and it'll come up again next week. 
And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God. This passage is about the triumph of the church. It's about the victory and vindication of the church. I've never heard a message preached on it, actually, but this is a beautiful summary of what we believe about the church, a a biblical theology of the church, right? It starts by showing us the witness of the church at the beginning of chapter 11. Chapter 10 is really the introductory bit where John is given the role to eat and to preach. And he's he's about to speak. He's told, if you like, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And then John explains, he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And what's going on here? Well, John has already told us that lampstands represent churches. 
And so it won't be a surprise to us probably that the church is the community that John is describing here. The church is the witnessing community that tells people who Jesus is, that prophesies to the world, that suffers, and that stands before the Lord. So when we read of these two witnesses who stand before the Lord, prophesy to the world, and witness to Jesus, we say, well, that sounds like it's got to be the church, right? The two lampstands. You may say, well, if they represent the church, why isn't there one of them if there's just one church? Why are, why are there two of them? And it's a good question, I think. And I think in, in biblical thinking, you have to remember that two witnesses is a way of showing some, that somebody is absolutely telling the truth. Right? In, in biblical thinking, if you have one witness, there's a lot of question about whether you're tell, they're telling the truth. And so there's a big emphasis in Scripture, and actually particularly in John's writing, a particular emphasis on the double witness. I mean, you read John's gospel. He's often making this point saying John the Baptist was a witness to the light. And there's another witness, effectively, in, in, in some ways. You know, whether the witness is Jesus himself or the witness of his works or the witness of the Father or the witness of the Holy Spirit. These various witnesses are important to John. These witnesses to the light, to Jesus. And in Revelation, the same is happening. We've got a double witness here. And that's talking, I think, about the double witness of the church. It's a way of saying the church is absolutely telling the truth. You can trust the church. The church's witness is valid because it's a double witness. He's saying it's guaranteed. It's true. It's trustworthy. In Islam, to take the contrast actually with Islam for a moment, in Islam, you don't have two or three witnesses. You have one witness. Muhammad goes up the mountain, comes back down, and delivers the message that he believes he, he, he heard. But there's no way of, of validating that message. There's no real way in Islam of testing, is what Muhammad said actually true? Of course, in Christianity, it's very different. You have not just two or three witnesses. In fact, you have multitudes of witnesses, and over 500 of them witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. You have 27 documents in the New Testament validly testifying to the historical Jesus, what he said and did, and, and what he accomplished in defeating death. And those documents are full of historical place names and people and details that you can check. And Christianity has always been that kind of, of thing. It's an appeal to a historic witness, a truthful witness, not simply a religious experience that I might have had. So you see, the, the double witness, if you like, the church is being shown, the truthful witness of the church by there being two of them. I think that's important. We actually begin by seeing the witness of the church, the testimony of the church. Then, in five, verses 5 and 6, we're showing the power of the church. That the church is not just two witnesses who witness with their words, but also with their power. That there, are, there is mighty power that comes forth from these two witnesses. Verse 5 and 6 and if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. Again, by now, if you've been reading Revelation, you know that the symbolism is not always to be read literally. In fact, it hardly ever is. So this isn't saying that Christians breathe fire at people and kill them. 
We'll see what the symbols mean in a moment. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll probably recognize that those symbols, where those symbols are from, there, there are two stories, two witnesses who testify to the Lord God in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, right? Moses has the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. Elijah has the power to speak and fire comes down from heaven and consumes his enemies and has the power to pray and shut the skies so that there's no rain. For three years. So these two witnesses, although I think that they refer to the, the double witness, the true witness of the church, they're drawing on imagery from Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, uh, and they're modeled on them. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, and the two witnesses who appear, they're the two witnesses that appear next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Moses and Elijah. So I think what John is doing here is he's using an Old Testament image to back up the fact that the church not only speaks the truth, but, but works powerfully to dis- demonstrate that what they're saying is true. Jesus is saying we don't just talk. The kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk. It's, it, it, it's a matter of power. Through prayer and mission, the church is able to accomplish mighty things that validate our message. I want to read you a story I read just recently I found, that I found both challenging and encouraging on this front. This is from an article in Christianity Today written by a very well-known New Testament scholar who's written a number of large, you know, huge commentaries. He's a very, very credentialed man. But this is the story uh, that he told. Around 1960 in the Republic of Congo, a two-year-old girl named Therese was bitten by a snake. She cried out for help, but by the time her mother, Antoinette, reached her, Therese was unresponsive and seemed to have stopped breathing. No medical help was available to them in their village, so Antoinette strapped little Therese to her back and ran to a neighboring village. According to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, brain cells start dying less than five minutes after their oxygen supply is removed, an event called hypoxia. After six minutes, lack of oxygen can cause severe brain damage or death. Antoinette estimates that given the distance and terrain, it probably took about three hours to reach the next village. By the time they arrived, her daughter was likely either dead or had sustained significant brain damage. Antoinette immediately sought out a family friend, Coco and and Goma Maiosi, who was an evangelist in the neighboring village. They prayed over the lifeless girl and immediately she started breathing again. By the next day, she was fine. No long-term harm and no brain damage. Today, Therese has a master's degree and is a church leader in Congo. When I heard this story, the guy says, when I heard this story as a Westerner, I was naturally tempted towards skepticism. But it was hard to deny. Therese is my sister-in-law and Antoinette is my mother-in-law. Now, I don't necessarily believe that such experiences are to be seen as the normative Christian experience. But such periodic, extraordinary acts of God do remind us that the church witnesses to Jesus with power. This power even to raise from the dead, the power to shut the sky. There's power ultimately in the name of Jesus. And the witness of the church is not just with words, it's, but, but in power. 
But you see, that contribution of truth-telling witness and prophetic power doesn't always go down well. And so thirdly in this text, we see the persecution of the church, right? Verses 7 and 8. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, and we'll talk a lot about the beast in a couple of weeks, but the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Frequently in Scripture, People who witness with power get persecuted. That's the next thing that happens, right? Moses, these people are ready to stone me. Elijah, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. It happens again and again and again. It happened to Jeremiah. It happened to John. It happened to uh, Peter. It happened to Paul. Many of them, interestingly, were persecuted in Jerusalem. The great city, John calls it, the great city where the Lord was crucified. In fact, Jesus said that would happen. Jesus himself spoke to Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, the the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. So actually, when you find here the idea that the witnessing powerful church gets persecuted and gets killed in Jerusalem, there's something not enormously surprising about that. Because the upshot is the beast, who we're going to meet in a couple weeks is going to fight and conquer and kill the church on the basis of their testimony. But if you witness to, because if you witness to Jesus with truthfulness and power, you will get persecuted. You may even get, even be killed. And so as part of our theology of the church, and this is where we need to walk a fine line between defe- being defeatists and being triumphalists. If, if what, I, what I just said, the church witnesses the truth and, 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 and we have power even to raise the dead and shut the sky to use the biblical language, then of course we hear the very next thing in scripture, but in doing, doing that we hear that the church faces grim persecution and comes under attack for the fact that they're doing these things. And we've got to bear that in mind as we understand who we are and what we're called to be in the world. We will face persecution. When we speak truth in power, we will face persecution. And we will even be killed. And then having seen the witness in power and the persecution of the church, finally we see the triumph of the church. Verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. See, for the believer, death is not the end. Death isn't even the beginning of the end. It's just the end of the beginning, isn't it? That's what death is for these people. So here what John can see is the church, like Jesus himself, killed and then raised from the dead after three days and summoned to heaven in a cloud in full view of their enemies. So the story that he's telling us here, our theology of the church, our picture of who the people of God are, is that we are those people who speak the truth, witness to the truth with power, face persecution and death, but then are vindicated and exalted, if you like, and raised from the dead in full view of everyone else so that everyone says, whoa, how did that happen? And then lifted up to heaven in a cloud effectively and vindicated publicly for our witness to Jesus. 
You may remember uh, the very chilling picture from about, I think it was about five years ago, of um, 21 Coptic Christians who were beheaded by ISIS on a Libyan beach. Uh, it was a very famous picture, uh, chilling picture, and the caption in the video um, called the captives the people of the cross, followers of the hostile Egyptian church. And I remember seeing the image of, of these terrorists all dressed in black and these guys all dressed in orange jumpsuit. And they're preparing to kill them. As I say, it was an image that a lot of people saw. It was all over the, the, the world media. And I guess it's a classic image in some ways of what uh, martyrdom can look like for Christians. All these people had done uh, is they were Coptic Christians. They worshiped Jesus in a very different way than we would here on a Sunday morning, but they loved the Lord Jesus Christ and they were a persecuted religious minority and they were taken out and publicly executed. And the people of ISIS doing it, uh, and if you've seen the picture, you notice that it's kind of weird. They, they've doctored it to um, exaggerate their size, right? The picture has been doctored so that they make themselves look like they're like seven feet tall. And of course, that's what evil does. Evil has to exaggerate its size to try and make itself look tough and big and, and scary. And, and, and so they make themselves look as intimidating and threatening as possible. Well, then the killers, the killers doing it, they saw it as an act of vengeance and as an act of terror. Right? They, they don't believe that anyone who is in the, in the country of Egypt ought to be worshiping the God revealed in Jesus. And so they say, we're going to kill you. They see it as an act of vengeance and terror. But John is in this text. John is showing the end of the story. John says, no, you stopped the tape, ISIS, world media. You stopped the tape in the wrong place. Because actually, this is not a moment of vengeance. Ultimately, this is a moment of vindication. This isn't a moment of terror. This isn't a moment of execution. This is a moment of exaltation. You stop the tape when the body falls to the ground, but the Bible doesn't. The Apostle John doesn't. Jesus doesn't. They carry on in the plot. They see that this is not a moment in which someone falls into the ground and dies, never to be seen again, and their enemies get to gloat over their victory and put it up on YouTube. The Apostle John is wanting us to see, he's not just wanting them, he's wanting the whole, whole worldwide church to see that martyrdom in Scripture is not an end. It's an enthronement. It's a lifting up high so that your enemies go, wow, how did God do that? I thought we killed you. We threw at you all of the weapons we had. And what has happened is God has used that defeat to turn it into victory. This is a moment of completion, of it is finished, of triumph, of applause. It's not a moment of defeat. And so even at that moment, and we'll see this theme again in the book of Revelation, even at the moment that looks the, the, the most bleak and dark, the Apostle John wants us to know in this vision that the church the doubly witnessing, truth-speaking, power-wielding church, when we are persecuted and when we die for our faith, that is not the end of the story at all. In fact, it is a means by which God then, after three days, causes us to be raised from the dead and ascend, if you like, metaphorically speaking, ascend straight up to heaven in a cloud so that, that 
that, that our enemies can even see the vindication that has come to us. This is the story of the triumph of the church. It's a story about the victory and vindication of the people who follow Jesus. So Revelation 11 is a glorious picture of the witness, the power, the persecution, and the triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's the story of the church corporately. We together, right? We may not have, certainly I haven't been killed for my faith. I wouldn't be here, neither would you. But we collectively do this. We testify. We demonstrate the kingdom with works as well as in words. We face opposition. We are vindicated. That's the story of the church together. It's also the story in many ways of individual Christians, right? That's what we do. When, when I come to faith, when you come to faith, we, I tell what God has done. I live out what God has done with divine power in my life. I suffer for my faith. I'm not, I've not been killed, and, and God willing, I won't be, but I, I, I suffer in various ways for my faith. And I rise and face vindication the other side of death into glory. So it's the story of the church as a whole and the story of individual Christians. But I'm imagining you've seen by now that it's not just only the story of the church, but it's the story of Jesus himself that he came testifying to, witnessing to the goodness and the power of God and the kingdom of God. He came working miracles with divine power. He came facing suffering and persecution and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's why when the seventh trumpet finally sounds after all this buildup, and let's be honest, we've had 11 chapters worth in many ways of buildup to what is on this scroll. And that seventh trumpet finally sounds. And there are loud voices in heaven shouting, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And he is going to reign forever and ever. And that's why they say it, because they know that it's not just that the church is conquered, but the church is conquered because Christ has conquered. And that is the grounds on which you and I, knowing what has happened to Jesus, what will also happen to us, we can join in the prayer of the elders that immediately follows in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Thank you that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. So the seventh trumpet, you see, is a picture of the second coming. It's a picture that Jesus is coming back. He came the first time to live within history, but he will come back a second time to end history. And when he returns, it will no longer be, he will no longer be praised as the one who is and who was and who is to come, but simply as the one who was and the one who is. In other words, we will stop singing about the future age and we will start enjoying the future age instead. He came the first time to proclaim the kingdom, but he will come a second time to enforce his kingdom. He came the first time to call people to follow him, him, but he will come the second time to vindicate and reward those who chose to do so and to judge those who refused his call. 
He came the first time to bear the wrath of the nations and ultimately the wrath of God for our sin. But he will come a second time to pour out his wrath on the wicked. He came the the first time largely unannounced, ignored by the innkeepers in Bethlehem and and crucified by the Jews and the Romans. He He will come a second time though with great fanfare so that in the words of Revelation 1, 7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all eyes of earth will mourn on account of him. Put simply, friends, Jesus' second coming will blow the whistle on A.D. history and will reveal once and for all which side each person is on. And we will all cry tears that day, either tears of joy and delight or, are there t- or tears of mourning and bitter regret. It will be the last and defining day of world history, and Jesus tells us about it so that we can live with it constantly in mind. You know, at the end of the second Lord of the Rings movie, the heroes are under siege in the fortress of Helm's Deep, and, and they're fighting for their lives against a, a, an innumerable army of evil orcs. And things look really bleak, and they finally accept that the fortress cannot hold out any longer. They will die. But then suddenly they look up, right? And they see the white figure coming over the brow of the hill. And their faces brightening. Gandalf's riding at the head of a great army of horsemen, leading reinforcements that can lift the siege. And he's, he promised to do so earlier in the movie, but it was so long ago that we almost forgot that he was coming. And so his sudden appearance is unexpected, and it brings deliverance and vindication and, and victory for our heroes, along with doom and death and defeat for their enemies. And it's a wonderful picture of how people will feel when Jesus returns, when that seventh trumpet sounds. You know, no matter how weak or defeated the church may appear, the fortunes of battle will change in an instant. And how terrible it will be for those who only discover that they are on the wrong side of history when Jesus appears and it is too late to change. You see, the promise of the second coming of Jesus should transform your life, whoever you are. It should transform your life if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. Because when that seventh trumpet sounds, you will no longer have opportunity to switch allegiances and you will weep bitter tears of regret and reap the reward of a lifetime of resisting your creator. But today you still have time to kneel before him. Today is still the day of salvation. But listen, the promise should also transform your life if you have surrendered to the Lord Jesus. Because since we know this is how the story ends. We are then freed and empowered to pour out all of our lives, all of our resources, our time, our money, our energy for his sake alone. And we'll gladly pay the cost for we know what it stores up for us on that last great day. And this vision excites and sustains us as we wait for that last trumpet to sound. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have that one day uh, you will return. How we long for that day of vindication. That day when you will lift your church 
um, from its often place of weakness and ridicule in this world. And you will show her as she truly is, the beloved of God, cared for and protected. The 144,000 have been sealed on their foreheads. The, the temple that has been measured out. The picture of you marking out and protecting your people. We thank you for that assurance that we have. And as we now come to the, the table that has been prepared for us, the Lord's table, this is a, a reminder of the great and abiding love you have for us. We thank you that what we enjoy now in foretaste with this bread and this cup, we will, not, we will, we will enjoy one day in fullness as we celebrate and sit together at, down at great feast upon the hearing of this final trumpet. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.